Welcome, everyone. Today is March 24th, 2021. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. You can submit your questions on Facebook Live, and we've had a few questions submitted ahead of time at wellness at svhealthcare.org. Uh, my guest today, is, I'm very excited about one of my uh, close friends and colleagues, Dr. Kevin Curtis. He's the medical director of the Connected Care Center for Telehealth at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Um, I'm just going to read you a few of the bullet points from the bio. I, I typically only read a couple of things, but he has so many things that are worth mentioning. I'm going to go through them all. He received his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Clarkson University and then worked as an aerospace engineer for McDonnell Douglas Astronautics, uh, like you know all of us uh, ventured into. He earned his MD from Georgetown University School of Medicine, served for four years as a lieutenant commander and general medical officer in the Navy. Uh, then got bored, I suppose, so he completed an emergency medicine residency uh, and then received his master's in healthcare delivery science from Tuck School of Business and the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And during his time at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, he has served as the emergency medicine research director, the assistant medical director of emergency services, and now the medical director of teleemergency. So, Kevin, uh, wow, you've done an amazing amount of things. It's really cool. Uh, just let's start and say, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like. Thanks, Trey. Great to be here. Uh, I guess the, what all of that means is, man, I must be old, uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> appreciate the introduction. So I grew up in Reading, Mass., so 12 miles north of Boston. Went through the public school system there, uh, right through high school. And then uh, after graduating from high school, lived in a whole bunch of different states and parts of the U.S., so some different parts of the world as part of the Navy, and then made my way back to New England uh, now 19 years ago. Wow. And, and you, you, know, you went into a non-medical path first, and, and we meet those doctors and nurses that, that do that, and they typically have their own uh, reasoning. But so why were you interested in engineering at the time? Yeah, so when I was in high school, uh, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I think probably my favorite subject was math and maybe second was science. So the, the general idea was if you liked math and science and you were going to college, that probably meant you were going to, you should major in engineering. So I did. Uh, <clears throat> so as you said, I, I went through college, got a degree in chemical engineering, and then uh, took that job at McDonnell Douglas as an aerospace engineer. Um, so just to put that a little context, so this is back in the mid 80s. Uh, so in the middle of the Cold War and in the middle of uh, the Reagan Strategic Defense Initiative, so Star Wars. And, uh, and not to go too deep into that, but the idea, right, was if we built an impenetrable defense, uh, there'd be no reason for high-tech wars anymore. So I had a project that I led that was come up with a material uh, that if you put it on the outside of stuff like uh, missiles or something would render them impenetrable to space-based lasers. Uh, so wow. yeah, that was uh, again, something 
probably many people on the call have also done space-based laser work in the past. But uh, so that was the incredibly cool project. Uh, really enjoyed it. Very smart people I worked with. Um, but at some point, I kind of started to question whether the initiative was really all defensive uh, and whether that project was. And I started to think maybe I could do something a little more altruistic with my career, but still have the same amount of problem solving. And that led me to apply to medical school and start my medical career. Wow, that is, it's a great story. I, I hope you didn't just divulge classified information. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for those um, of you who are listening to this podcast or, or viewing uh, on Facebook Live and live in, in the general area of Bennington County and Southwestern Vermont Medical Center, a uh, little trivia question that you can think about. There is another physician um, on our medical staff who actually, uh, prior to going into medicine, was a physicist working on uh, sonar, and I believe radar, but I know sonar uh, for similar reasons that mm -hmm. Dr. Curtis, um, but I, I don't think I can say his name on air or I may get in trouble, but uh, mm -hmm. you can contact me privately to find out who that is. So, you know, when you were in the military, actually, I have to tell you, I love working with colleagues, uh, doctors and nurses who have been in the military. I learned so much from them. Um, I know they believe in standardization because they know it leads to reliable outcomes. But tell us a little bit about your experience uh, in the military as far as how it shaped your medical career. Yeah, I think um, probably the major lessons learned are only tangentially, as you kind of alluded to, related to medicine. But um, to put even that into context, so um, when I worked for McDonnell Douglas, I decided to put uh, almost all of my savings into the stock, into McDonnell Douglas stock. And I started meds, and I was going to use that to pay for two or maybe three years of med school. And uh, Georgetown, like many, was pretty expensive. So I started med school in the fall of 87. And some may remember what happened around October of 87, which was a market crash. So uh, that plan changed. Um, and you know the, the military has an unbelievable program to put uh, pay for people to go to medical school and then to uh, do service afterwards. And I had really no exposure to the military before as far as essentially none of my family or friends were military other than my dad was drafted and did a couple of years um, and certainly no exposure to career military. And so I uh, did join the Navy, uh, did a uh, Navy, as you said, surgical internship and general medical officer. And what I really learned that was, um, I learned pretty quickly was that for people in the military, um, it is not just a job. It is something that is part of their entire life, uh, the whole the whole day, the whole week, what they do, what their families do, and they are unbelievably dedicated and passionate about it, um, while also putting their lives on the line to protect us, of course. And um, and it made me really think that I want to be that dedicated and passionate about medicine as they are about the military, so that. It just had such a significant impact. And still, when I think about it now, um, you know, it's much more on our minds maybe than it was at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, again, there is this 
unbelievable community out there doing this work that has that degree of dedication and passion. And, and shouldn't we all try to apply that to what we do with our lives? Wow. I mean, I just have to say that, that was so eloquent. Um, it, it does remind me that, you know, most people go into medicine uh, with a very similar, um, for a very similar reason, and that is to limit suffering uh, in, in communities um, that they serve. And then you can get sort of into the weeds a bit and, and not see the forest from the trees. And so um, I, I can see how that military uh, background and that dedication, you know, that your mission is right in front of you. Um, and that's great. So before we kind of go into telemedicine, then, uh, and, and the topic of our show today, what do you do outside of, um, uh, uh, outside of Dartmouth-Hitchcock with your family and, and for your own interests? Yeah, I'm, it's, I'm probably not unusual in Northern New England in that um, I love to be outside and I love to be active. Um, I've been a runner for most of my adult life. And in the last couple of years, that's mostly taken the form of trail running. So uh, I try to do that a couple of times a week and I'm always looking for a new trail to find and not infrequently get lost on. But uh, fortunately, that's not resulted in search and rescue yet. Uh, so I do that right through the winter. Um, I, despite being an emergency medicine doc like you, I like to ride my Harley and I like to do that on back roads and up through the Kangamangas. Um, I uh, switched, my whole family switched from skiing to snowboarding about 15 years ago. And oh. none of us have looked back. So we do that again. And and then still uh, growing up in Massachusetts, I still really enjoy following all the Boston sports teams, um, sometimes at a pathological level, but uh, <laughs> really enjoy that as well. Oh, that's great. No, that's super. In fact, I will say just the trails on the um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock property, you can get lost on, yeah. uh, as I found out recently as darkness <laughs> approached, but uh, I made it back also without a search and rescue. So, <laughs> well, when we talk about telemedicine, then... Um, let me, before I, before you describe your role, just how did you get into telemedicine? Um, was it circumstance? Did it have to do with your background? Uh, and then you can just expand on that and we'll have a conversation in that regard. Sure. Uh, so I got involved with telemedicine probably now uh, six years ago. So at the time, uh, among a couple other telehealth services, Dartmouth-Hitchcock had decided to launch this tele-emergency service, um, which we might talk more about, but just briefly is, so we have this high-tech hub at the medical center where there's an ED doc and ED nurse that is available to beam into a variety of emergency departments in the region and have live interactive help and join the local team and help in whatever way we can. So that was being launched and uh, I was offered the opportunity to be medical director of that service and to be one of the initial kind of core group of docs and nurses that would be providing the care. Uh, so it sounded like a very new, exciting opportunity. Uh, it also, I was excited about opportunity to potentially help. I thought it could work and uh, could be useful. But I will, you know, be honest. I wasn't exactly sure how it would work. Right, uh, all my prior emergency medicine was right at the bedside of people who needed my help. So uh, I wanted to give it a try, but 
sometimes I'd be providing care from 300 miles away. So how's that going to work? Right. So, all right. So let me just start by saying a little bit uh, for our audience there, there is a slight difference between telehealth and telemedicine, even though those, those words are used interchangeably and that's fine. You know, we think about telehealth as more of a monitoring aspect where you're measuring someone's blood pressure or even glucose levels uh, from afar and, and then making decisions on that. But telemedicine is, is really um, doing diagnosis and treatment via um, usually a video type um, setup. And, and as Kevin has shown in the past, um, you know, not unlike what was what would happen on the Jetsons and, uh, and, and other types of sort of um, in the future television, it's actually happening now. So Kevin, what what does happen now? And just speak specifically to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Sure. Um, so it, we have, as you said, that we call it Connected Care, our Center for Telehealth. And within that, um, and that formed in 2012, and really uh, thinking about how do we bring care to where people are and where they need it, rather than always asking people to come to us for care. And particularly, right, we're all we're in this rural region that it can be really hard to get to specialty care. Even in the summer, it could be a half day off of work, could be a full day off of work. You need childcare, you need transportation. Never mind if it's winter. So, how could we bring care to folks? And along those lines, we currently have eight telehealth services at Dartmouth Hitchcock. And I'll first just kind of list them and say one sentence about each, and then we can decide where to dive in a little deeper. Okay, so, sounds great. Yeah, so we have teleemergency that I described a little bit and joining ED bedside teams to help uh, in whatever way we can. We have tele-ICU, which is the other area that has that high-tech hub. So again, doc and a nurse sitting in this ICU hub, and we are at the bedside whenever needed at both all our adult ICU beds at the medical center, as well as 35 additional ICU beds in the region, including at SVMC. And again, helping and keeping an eye on folks just uh, so we can be, we're all part of the same team. We have a teleneuro service, which includes telestroke. So if you come to, as a patient to any emergency department in that service, and you have symptoms that may be a stroke, you will via a telehealth cart be able to get instant access to a neurologist who will evaluate you, look at your CAT scan, decide what care is best, decide if you need, should get that clot busting medication and you get care just like if they, you're at a stroke specialty center. We have telepsychiatry and then this, I'm talking about emergency, but go into an emergency department with a mental health crisis you will have immediate access to a psychiatrist. And we know how challenging mental health resources are in the country and in the region. Uh, we also have tele-ICN, which is for neonatal care. So again, neonatal emergencies, maybe there's a preemie is born suddenly at a rural hospital. You don't have a neonatologist. Right away, you can have one via a tablet or a cart and they can help you evaluate uh, and treat that baby. We have telepharmacy in over 20 hospitals in the region, and that's uh, basically reviewing and helping to do orders on pharmacy orders throughout the region. We also have outpatient virtual visits, 
which all of those things I've described so far are either emergency or urgency, and I need something now 24-7. Outpatient virtual visits are what we, the term we use for, that's a scheduled appointment that many people have had now with either your primary care doctor or one of your specialty doctors, often in your own home. And then uh, we just launched our direct-to-consumer virtual urgent care, which, for example, on your phone 24-7, if you're having cough, cold, upper respiratory infection, that kind of thing, you can see a provider via that app or phone-based service. So that's kind of a whirlwind tour of the services that we have. And you, and you offer those uh, throughout the Northeast uh, or even further, and some hospitals uh, or some medical practices have parts of those services. Yeah. Uh, just to remind uh, those in, in this area at SBMC, we have several services. We may be the largest subscriber to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, uh, Connected Care Center. Uh, but for example, we, we have the telepharmacy, we have the, the stroke. If someone presents to our emergency department, they're going to get a board-certified emergency physician right at the bedside. Uh, and then alongside them is going to be a board-certified neurologist via telemedicine to help guide that treatment. Um, so in, you know, we're in a pandemic. Um, how have you seen uh, the telemedicine work? Uh, I'm certain that it has been incredibly useful in certain situations. Yeah, so like many things, the pandemic has affected many of our services, but maybe the one that I'll call out that has had the most dramatic impact was on those scheduled outpatient visits. So prior to the pandemic, it was actually our least busy service in many ways. We were doing just eight to 10 visits per day with a specialist or primary care doc across the region. And then the, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Some are, it wasn't uh, reimbursed well for payers like Medicare, wouldn't pay for visits to people's homes. Uh, there are broadband challenges that continue for people that can't do video for one reason or another, audio or telephone wasn't paid for. There were licensing challenges. So all these things made it difficult. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and we went from eight to 10 a day to peaking at 2,600 a day. <laughs> so wow. uh, even being a four bar engineer, I can't tell you what percent increase that is, but it's a large number. <laughs> and, uh, and that was again, across the region. Um, initially, a lot of those visits were telephone and now the majority involved video and even though as uh, hospitals and facilities reopened, we saw a decrease in the number of visits, but we are pretty steadily at uh, probably 800 to 1,000 a day now. So much, much more than pre-pandemic and again, stable um, 800 to 1,000 a day as opposed to continually decreasing. And, and we see, uh, just to say, incredibly high levels of satisfaction, both on the patient side and on the provider side with that ongoing care. That's great. You know, it reminds me um, for the audience here, um, you know, Kevin and I talk about this frequently, uh, ascribing anything new to being the, the panacea for the future is, is bound to disappoint. Um, but as Kevin pointed out, the, the, um, 
the telemedicine visits, these outpatient visits stayed and they're now stable at probably the right level because um, there is a reason to go in and see your doctor in person. Uh, in fact, I'd even venture maybe a majority of the de time depending on the situation. Um, but for, for other situations and actually for other just life circumstances for certain individuals, um, telemedicine is, is very useful in that regard. I'll also point out that in the, in the pandemic where uh, at SVMC um, was a great help, and that is in our ICU. So, so much new information about these uh, patients that are sick with COVID, it's hard to uh, keep up with it for one or two uh, physicians or even an entire um, ICU. And by working together, we were able to uh, keep many patients uh, at SVMC, uh, treat them, uh, have them stay at least in vicinity of their family. Unfortunately, their family couldn't visit because of restrictions. And then, um, and then get the patient home once they were improved. And that was uh, so helpful. They didn't have to go through all the difficulties with travel during the pandemic uh, in, in that regard. So I'm just going to hit my phone here, which is uh, ringing and I didn't uh, turn it off ahead of time, um, but let's keep moving. We only got a few more minutes here. Um, do you have any, any comments about how you handle uh, patients or even your, your colleagues that question the use of, of telemedicine? Yeah, uh, first I'll say one thing that I observed and it was certainly true of me when I first started doing telehealth is um, for particularly for clinicians, and I think sometimes, but less so for patients, when we first think about telehealth, we think about what it can't do. Somehow our mind goes there and says like, and I will, just like you said, Trey, it is not a panacea, but it is a, what will still be an integral part now of the menu of how you would like to get your healthcare. It is now an option, but we tend to go, uh, here's what I can't do. How will I get a procedure? Well, uh, that will still be in person. How will my clinician lay hands on me? If that's necessary, that will be in person. Um, but once we overcome that hurdle of trying both at the clinician side and at the patient side, we almost universally see as long as the technology worked, it takes typically one experience for people to become believers. So we do spend a lot of time trying to make it as seamless that first encounter as possible in advance of the visit or, or either the local team, the local provider, the person, their family. But really what we found is you get to that first experience and in general, it is, holy cow, that was much better than I thought. And, and we've also learned it's amazing how many different things I can effectively do by telehealth uh, as opposed to what I thought before I gave it a try. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good explanation. And, and I'm happy to say, too, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I uh, fortunately got exposed early like you um, many years ago, maybe as long as 10 years ago and started looking at it heavily for our system and my own thinking has, has evolved. I know something that's um, evolved in the past two years and then really in the pandemic was the concern that uh, a patient may have appropriately so that they're losing their um, contact and relationship with their own physician or advanced practice provider. And, um, and that's true, um, just like anything, you can go online and, and sort of find what you want out there and it may just not really uh, be appropriate for your situation. However, uh, today, you know, with Dartmouth Hitchcock and 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 with other services, you can still maintain that relationship with your uh, chosen uh, physician or advanced practice provider 
through telemedicine and a combination of in-person and telemedicine. And I think that's where it sort of looks like right now where it's settling out, um, which is fantastic. So with that, let me just say, what's it going to look like in five years? Uh, do you have your crystal ball with you? Um, I do. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what I think it will become and is just starting to become is uh, telehealth and telemedicine will be so embedded in care that we will no longer call it out as something unique. We won't say, uh, were people satisfied with their video visit or uh, what was the outcome of their video visit? It will just be part of how you get care. Sometimes it will be in person. Sometimes it will be by telehealth and all of it. Just like, you know, now if you go in for an office appointment, you don't really know in advance to what degree who will be involved in the care other than your main uh, clinician. So there might be a unit secretary or an MA or an LNA or a nurse and others, and that's all okay. It's all part of your visit. Similarly, if you're seen in an ICU or have to stay overnight, there may be telehealth involved, there may not, and it will just be healthcare. And uh, so that's where I think we will get is that it will be such an integral part that we won't think about it as something unique. It'll just be integrated and it'll continue to be an option for how people do you want, is that the way you want to get your care where you want it in that modality? And if so, we know how to do it well. That's great. You know, you mentioned um, that we tend to go to, and I do this as well, sort of the negative, what, what can something not do? Um, and in telemedicine, I know you've been exposed um, as, as have I, to really positive stories that have occurred. As we're closing up here, can you share one of those stories uh, with our audience? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll go in the tele-ICN, that neonatal care. Uh, so a couple months ago, so in October, um, a woman presented to a regional uh, rural hospital um, in active labor, 20, only 25 weeks pregnant. Mm. Uh, so, and uh, like most hospitals in the country, um, very highly functioning hospital, but doesn't have a neonatologist. Uh, that is again, true of most hospitals in the country. So, but they did have tele-ICN. Um, so, you know, as most of us know, presenting at 25 weeks, that is high, high risk presenting to any hospital and even higher if you don't have a neonatologist to help right after the baby's born. So they uh, engaged the tele-ICN service even while the woman was in labor before the baby is delivered. And they talked together and they said, what do we need to get ready? Let's make sure we're all on the same page. And let's think about how best to work together through this. Baby was born by an emergency C-section and uh, quite a bit of resuscitation occurred and the neonatologist led them right through it. That included breathing for the baby, putting an IV in this tiny little guy, getting the baby stable and coordinating a neonatal specialty transport uh, to then come to the medical center. And last week, the baby was discharged from the hospital after five months here and is doing great. Um, so uh, really a great story and a great story of collaboration between a tremendous local team, which we have all over our region and our telehealth via our neonatology team. Super story. And, uh, and we have some uh, similar stories right here from SVMC through that collaboration. So um, it, let me just thank everyone for joining us today. We're out of time on Medical Matters Weekly. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Kevin Curtis of the Connected Care Center for Telehealth, 
at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. I know there is a lot of information out there on their website if you would like to learn more. Uh, you can also check out our website at SVMC. And then um, you can contact us if you want to learn more about telemedicine and, and what's going on out there. I'd also like to thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, uh, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, and Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare for making this show possible. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy, even in the face of adversity, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>